The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And we're continuing our study of sola scriptura, scripture alone, which commands our belief and action. And last week we saw that scripture is inspired. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. And this week, I just want to bring to you out of 1 Corinthians 2 this simple truth that you can trust the Scriptures. You can trust them. You know, in our day and age, we have become very jaded, very cynical, because we can't trust hardly anything. You can't trust phone calls if people are trying to steal your identity. You can't trust what's on the internet because of fake news, because of clickbait, because of doctored videos and pictures and, and, and people that have... Uh, I saw with this Houston flood, I saw a picture of a shark swimming down the highway. Did anybody see that? It's fake. It's not real. Someone took a Photoshop and they Photoshopped a great white shark, which doesn't live in the Gulf, and they Photoshopped it on one of the highways underwater as if the shark was swimming down the highway in Houston. And people were reposting it as if it was true. And we've become this very cynical, jaded society because we know we can't be gullible. We can't trust these things on the internet. And unfortunately, it becomes that way with the Word of God as well. We have people at universities that that uh, have, you know, they've been given their, their like I took a, a, a religious religion and film class, and the guy that taught the religion film class at UC Davis, he was part of the Jesus Seminar. And if you remember that in the 70s, the Jesus Seminar was trying to cut apart the words of the Gospels to determine what Jesus really said. And they didn't believe in miracles, so therefore Jesus could not really have done any miracles or talked about any miracles. He wasn't really God, so Jesus, they cut out all the words that said that where Jesus claimed, I'm God or that he's the Messiah, or the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and it reduced it down to Jesus just being a good moral man. An example to follow because he's a nice guy. Well, a nice guy isn't going to save you. And if, the word, if we can't trust the words of Scripture, if some of them are wrong and we can't trust them, then we can't trust any of the Scripture. Because it's just good advice. And so that's why it was so important last week to see that all of Scripture is God-breathed. All of it is the Word of God. So that when Scripture speaks, God speaks. Now here, we're laying upon that foundation, we're building up this idea that because God is righteous, and because God is trustworthy, because God keeps His promises, you can trust His Word. And so the Word of God is trustworthy because it's God's Word. And here in 1 Corinthians 2... It's really a a remarkable passage because Paul had gone into Corinth and Corinth was a big metropolitan city in the Roman Empire. It would be like going to San Francisco, um, going to not quite New York City. That was the Rome of Roman Empire um, or Constantinople or Alexandria, Egypt. Those were the major cities, but, but Corinth was a major metropolitan area, not quite as big as the big ones, but something like a San Francisco or a Chicago Something like that. And, and what Corinth was known for, it was known for all of its philosophers. There was a different religion and philosophy on every street corner. And that's why they prized 
wisdom. And so Paul in chapter 2, he actually tells the Corinthian church, hey, Corinthian church, I know you grew up in this. You grew up in this climate where everybody prizes wisdom and philosophy. But when I brought the gospel to you, I didn't come with wisdom and philosophy and rhetoric and fancy speech. Fancy speech, rather. See, I grew up in Ohio. I have fancy speech. But here, let me just read to you out of 1 Corinthians 2 what he says. I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message, they weren't in plausible words of wisdom, but they were in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, the first thing we see here, verses 1 to 5, the Bible can seem unimpressive. The Bible can seem unimpressive. Paul was an unimpressive person. He was a little Jewish man that wasn't very good looking by all accounts. He had a lot of scars on him. He'd been beat up. He didn't come with any hype. He didn't come with any buzz. It didn't hit the trending section of Twitter that Paul was coming into town. Kind of like being a ghetto boy from Vallejo. Nothing impressive from the world's perspectives. No connections. Not in the right circles. Not in the right family. Not the right history. My high school isn't even a high school anymore. It's now a middle school. It was demoted. It's really depressing. I still say go Spartans, but it's depressing. Not only was Paul unimpressive, so too was Jesus unimpressive. And when Paul preached Jesus, he didn't preach a conquering king, he preached a crucified Messiah. It was unimpressive by the world standards. And there's a lot of beliefs out there in our culture. And Tim Keller, he calls them defeater beliefs in his book, The Reason for God. And these are beliefs that people in our culture just generally hold to be true about Christianity, but we would say they're not true. For example, there can't just be one true religion. Or, how could a good God allow suffering? Or, Christianity, it's a straitjacket. It binds you up. Or, the church is responsible for so much injustice in or how could a loving God send people to hell? Or you know that science has disproved Christianity, don't you? Or you can't really take the Bible literally. After all, it talks about Jonah being swallowed by a big fish. It talks about a flood. It talks about God making Adam and Eve in the beginning. You can't take that stuff literally. And so this message that was weak by the world's standards in that day, it's weak by the world standards our day, not only was the message weak and unimpressive from the world's perspective, so too was the messenger. Paul says, I came to you, I didn't come, proclaiming a message that was lofty. It wasn't filled with wisdom from the world's eyes because what I preached to you was a crucified Messiah. I preached to you about a Jewish man who was hung on a cross outside Jerusalem and he died and he was buried in a tomb. And not only was the message an unimpressive message, 
I was an unimpressive messenger, verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. You remember in the book of Galatians how the accusation is, you know, with Paul, when he writes, man, his words sound weighty. He sounds really intelligent and it sounds weighty, but when he's in person, he's nothing. He's not impressive. That was the accusation of the Judaizers in Galatia that accused him. And so Paul says, hey, I know this about me. When I preached the gospel to you, I wasn't the greatest public speaker in the world. I didn't have all of this charming charisma. But the message itself, verse 4, it was also preached in plain speech. He says, my speech, my message, they weren't implausible words of wisdom. You see, good communicators in our culture, they're the politicians, they're the comedians, they're the motivational speakers. And all of the good communicators in our culture are focused on themselves. You know, by the way, by my book. And Paul says, when I came, by the world's standards, I didn't come to persuade you by the manipulation of arguments and skillful rhetoric. What did he say? He says in verse 4, when I came, my speech, my message, they weren't implausible words, but they were in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul's goal was the manifestation of God's power in people's lives. He said that's the ultimate goal, isn't it? Paul says, I'm actually being a pragmatist, not following pragmatism as a way of life like we know it, but Paul says, I'm concerned about what is really powerful, what will really change you. What will really give you hope and peace and joy? What is it? The message of the cross, which is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. And isn't that what we believe? And I know it. It's hard to live in this world and work in this world, and you say you're a Christian to these people, and they look at you like you're a dinosaur. They look at you as if you're something that should be on display in a museum. An oddity. Like, you believe that stuff about Jesus? Yes, I do. And I know it's unimpressive. And I know I'm unimpressive. But the cross and the message of the cross, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. And this is what Paul's concerned about. He's very pastoral. Listen, we can never make the gospel cool. We can't. We can't dress it up and make it hip and cool and make it attractive. Al Mohler said, the word of the cross, the very substance of the Christian gospel, it's absolute madness to those who are perishing. It's irrationality, he says. It's insanity to them. It makes no sense whatsoever. We know that. It takes the power of God to open our eyes to understand the message of the cross so that Jesus is no longer a curse word, but he is our Savior. And that's what Christ has done. This is why we cling to him. And this is why Paul says in verse 5, even though the Bible seems unimpressive, we must trust in God's power, not in human wisdom. Verse 5. Your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, this is what it means. What does it mean to have your faith rest on God's power? Here it means you believe that the cross is the way of salvation. You're convinced by the work of the Spirit in your own life you're convinced by the work of the Spirit in other believers' lives, and you turn away from any trust in yourself, any trust in human wisdom, and you turn to God and the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way to God. This is what we believe. 
And so when we read this word, we receive in it the message of the cross, the gospel. And because we receive that in it and we apply it to our lives, we receive the power of God in our lives. This is what Paul's saying. And so he goes on to say in the next 10 verses from 6 to 16, the rest of the chapter, he says the scriptures are actually true wisdom. So the Bible can seem unimpressive, but the reality is the scriptures are true wisdom. And he does something interesting here in verse 6. He makes a, a, almost a thesis statement. It's a theme statement. And he says in verse 6, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. And what he's going to do for the rest of verse 6 and all the way down to verse 16 is he's going to explain this idea of Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. So the Bible may seem unimpressive. It may seem foolish, but it's actually true wisdom. The message of wisdom is everything the Bible teaches about salvation, about the Christian life. It's Christ Jesus. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 30, just turn back one chapter. Look what he says here. This is the the true wisdom that the, the Bible has in it because it speaks of the cross. Verse 30, because of him, that is the Father, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us what? Wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So he says, Jesus Christ, when you believed in him, because of the Father's work in your life through the Spirit, Jesus Christ became to you the wisdom of God. And what is that wisdom include? What does it entail? It includes righteousness. You've been declared righteous in Christ. It includes sanctification. You have been set apart to God as something special and set apart and holy and sanctified to him. You now are saints, holy ones. And that wisdom includes, he says in verse 30, redemption. You've been purchased with the blood of Christ and you're not your own. You belong to Christ now. And Colossians 1 tells us when he purchased us and redeemed us, he transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son, the one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses. What a glorious truth it is. This is our hope. This is what we need to be reminded about. Because we look at the news, we look at the world, we hang out in this culture, and we begin to lose sight of the fact of who we really are in Christ. And we begin to doubt the Bible and the Word of God that we can trust it. Paul says, listen, I'm talking to you about what really brings power, what really works, what is real wisdom. It's found in Christ. Back to verse 6 of chapter 2. The source of true wisdom is God the Father, verses 6 and 7. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, the Father, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. The goal of God's plan, the Father's plan, was that believers would have an ultimate good. It was for whose glory in this passage? We, verse 7, impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for His glory. No, it doesn't say that, although that's true, isn't it? It's for the glory of God. But here he says, listen, this plan of God that he purposed before the foundation of the world, that he planned for us, and at the high point of the ages he sent his son, and he poured out his spirit, and he's going to make all things new. Guess whose glory it's for, Christian? Yours. 
What an amazing thought. Look what he said in verse 6. He says, guess what? All the wisdom of this world, the wisdom of the rulers of this age, it doesn't actually work. Why? They're doomed to pass away. They're doomed to pass away. So the goal of God's plan was the ultimate good of believers. It was for our glory. And instead of sharing in the fate of the rulers of this age who come to nothing, who are doomed to pass away, we instead are going to be glorified by God forever. And we should expect glory because our union with the risen and exalted Christ is forever. He was raised. He was exalted. He was seated at the right hand of the Father. And Ephesians tells us we're raised with Him. We're seated with Him in the heavenlies. And it's not yet been revealed what we are or what we're going to receive. But because we're in Christ, now we have this hope that will never disappoint. It will never fade away. And Paul says in Ephesians 1, because of that, the same power that was in work in raising Jesus from the dead is the same power that's at work in your life today. Resurrection power. That means you don't have to sin anymore, Christian. You can say no to it. You can become like Jesus. That sin you've been battling in your life that you've been hiding and it's a secret and it's just been in, it's put you in this bondage and you've sort of compartmentalized it and you feel guilty about it, Christ can deliver you from that by the power of the Spirit. All of the hopes and dreams you have for your purpose in life and what God would have you do for His kingdom and His glory, He will empower you to do it. It's not just a pipe dream. And if you're still on this earth, you have not wasted your chances. You can do everything else better in heaven. And if he didn't want you here to bear fruit and have good works that you would walk in here, he'd take you home. And so that means God still has something for you to do here, and he's given you the power to do it. That is far more hopeful than anything the world would ever offer or ever tell you. Because the best they have is, Man, if you eat well and you exercise, you might gain a few couple more years on your life, and then you'll die. (laughs) That doesn't sound very hopeful. So this source of true wisdom, verses 6 and 7, is from the Father. And then verses 8 to 12, it comes to us from the apostles and prophets through the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But it's written, What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man has imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who's from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. This is an incredible reality. The reason Paul and other Christian teachers can declare God's wisdom, the things he's prepared for all believers to receive, Even though these things are inaccessible to humans, they've been revealed by the Holy Spirit to them. The Spirit of God searches out the deep things of God. That is the depths of God's purposes. And we can't even get to that wisdom without the Spirit's aid. But think about the reality of this. Even though it's hidden 
it says, and cannot be found. It's a mystery which cannot be solved, verses 6 and 7. The very depths of God himself, verse 10. The Spirit of God can reveal that to us through the Word of God to the glory of Christ and God the Father. Now, do you want to listen to man's words or God's words? It's a simple question, and I think if, if we were honest, we'd say, well, of course we want to listen to God's word. Do we want to listen to man's wisdom or God's wisdom? Well, of course we want God's wisdom. Because it's far more trustworthy than man's wisdom. The latest news article I saw on a health thing was that, guess what, carbs are bad and fat is good. And if you've lived any length of time, that's totally opposite of what they've been saying for a whole long time. That fat is bad and carbs are good. Well, that's man's wisdom. It's good wisdom and it's backed by research. And I'm not saying we shouldn't like pay attention to what nutritionists say. We should. But it's, it's man's wisdom. It's liable to error. It needs to be modified. It needs to be revisited and, and reworked with better information that we now have so that it can be put into a better model so that we can have better data, better research, better results, better things to research in the future going forward. That's what scientists do, and they're very good at. And even the best of them, it's still man's wisdom. But here we have God's wisdom in the Word of God. God knows everything. He doesn't have to have future knowledge come in to improve his research. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows the results before the data has ever been run. And he's the one who reveals these things to us by the Spirit. But isn't it so easy to look at this book and think, man, I don't have time for it today. I got so much to do, and I don't think it's going to speak to my need. I'm going to Google search instead. And I... That's not even really a joke. I did it yesterday. I had to figure out how to fix my fence. And what did I do? Well, this doesn't have data on how to fix my fence necessarily. But I had to fix my fence. What did I do? Google search to YouTube to watch a video of a guy with the same fence who fixed it. And then I fixed it and I was happy. We become so dependent upon that that when it comes to spiritual matters, we do the same thing. We Google search our spiritual problem hoping to find a spiritual solution on YouTube or some blog or some website. And someone would be happy to sell it to you for a fee and then get your email and put you on a million mailing lists that you can never get off of. The Word of God is true wisdom. And notice it's been given freely to us. You don't have to pay for it. It's God's free gift to us. And the purpose of receiving the Spirit who's from God is that we as believers might know the things that God has already freely given us in Christ. All three persons of the Trinity are at work here. Do you see that? The Father's plan, the Father's revealing of His plan by the Spirit, everything that He's done in His Son, in Jesus Christ, in our union with Him. And so Paul says, this is the meaning of what it means in verse 6, imparting wisdom. It's found in the Word of God, the word wisdom. And then he goes back to the imparting in verse 13. What does it mean to impart? Communication of this wisdom in the Bible is not with words of human wisdom, verse 13. He says, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. 
It's the words of the Spirit. The thoughts of God can only be accessed by the Spirit of God. And this verse is, I think, speaking about how we got the Bible from the apostles and prophets. How can we know the Bible is 100% written by God and 100% written by man with their style, their grammar, their idiosyncrasies, their slang even, their coining of phrases like Paul does, etc.? The Spirit of God inspired the apostles and prophets to write the Scriptures. They weren't just robots. They weren't just typewriters. They weren't Siri. And you're just talking into Siri and having it go from speech to text. I've learned a whole lot about that lately with this flappy wing I have. It's really hard to type. It's really frustrating. My productivity has gone way down. But these authors weren't just robots. They weren't possessed by the Spirit and taken over. They were prepared. They were instructed and persuaded by the Holy Spirit before they engaged in the writing. And when they wrote, the Spirit took their words, their vocabulary, compared them with God's thoughts so that the end result is both what the author, like Paul, wanted and what the Spirit of God wanted. So the inspiration of Scripture is God writing it, God speaking it, and Paul or Peter or the author speaking it. It's the Scriptures that are inspired, not the authors. That's Because of that, we can trust the Scriptures. It's the Word of God. And so he says, this is what it means to impart. Paul says, we impart this wisdom we, that we received from the Spirit of God, interpreting spiritual truths with spiritual words. Verse 14 he then explains the meaning of mature, the natural person. They don't accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. But the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, this is a little bit hard to understand, perhaps, in the context. Um, but he says, basically, verse 14 you cannot receive wisdom without the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you can't receive wisdom. Not the wisdom of God. You can receive the wisdom of man, but you can't receive the wisdom of God. The person without the Spirit refers to anybody who's not placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Word of God tells us that when we are converted, when we place faith in Christ, we have the Spirit, we're born again, the Spirit dwells inside of us, regenerates us, and everyone who is spiritual has the Spirit. So to be a person without the Spirit is to be a person without Christ. And the Bible says this is foolishness, verse 14. The, the, the word of the cross is foolishness to them. The Bible's rejected by them. And, and Ephesians 4 tells us it's not just an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. Turn over to Ephesians 4. This is why we so desperately want to pray for the Great Commission to go forth in our community through us. Ephesians 4, verse 17 Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. And so you would think, well, ignorance, they just need to be taught, right? Ignorant people just don't know and they need to be taught. And so if we just teach them, they'll no longer be ignorant and they'll believe what we believe. 
But that's not what Paul says here. He says the reason they're ignorant is a willful ignorance because it's due, verse 18, to the hardness of heart. They become callous, had given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learn Christ, he goes on to say. So it's not just a matter of intellect. It's not just a matter of teaching them the gospel. It's a moral problem. They're willfully ignorant because of the hardness of their hearts because they don't want to come to the light, as John says, lest their deeds be exposed. See, the gospel, it's sort of a reverse altar call. The gospel says... Remember Jesus? He said, if you don't leave your father and mother and follow me, you have no part of me, right? If you don't set aside what you're doing and follow me, you have no part of me. He says the gospel itself is offensive because it tells you, guess what? You're a sinner. Alienated from God, you, you are actually at war with God because of your rebellion, because you've broken his laws. And, and as I've said before, it's not just that you went... Faster than the speed limit, you offended the person. It's not just an arbitrary breaking of a law. It's an offense against God the Father. And because of it, the gospel says you deserve his punishment. And the punishment against an infinite holy God is hell forever separated from the life of God. But God's great love Because he so loved us, he sent his son to be our savior, to forgive us of our sins, to be our substitute, to take the punishment we deserved and the penalty we deserved so that we could go free and be a part of his family. This is the good news of the gospel. And Paul says, the person without the spirit to them, it's rejected. It's foolishness. Because they don't want their deeds to be exposed. Back to 1 Corinthians 2. Every Christian, on the other hand, has the Spirit and is therefore spiritual. That seems almost self-evident that a spiritual person is someone who has the Spirit. But in, the, in Christian circles, even in our circles, don't we tend to think that we're just the regular Christians and the really spiritual ones are those who are missionaries, perhaps, that sell everything they have and go move somewhere else, or the really spiritual ones are maybe the, the church leaders, They're the really spiritual ones, and I'm just the average Christian. But here what Paul says is, no, if verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord, so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Paul assumes that if you are not a natural person who does not have the Spirit, but rather you're a spiritual person, you have the Spirit. Every Christian has the Spirit. It's a reference to all Christians. And because of the Spirit, it says, you're able to judge and discern all things because you have the Word of God to help you. So in other words, you have wisdom. Remember, he's talking about wisdom in this whole thing. And he's talking about mature Christians. What is it among the mature we do impart wisdom, verse 6? Although it's not the wisdom of this age. He says, guess what? There's real wisdom in the Word of God. And if you have the Spirit of God, it's been imparted to you by the Spirit of God. And you are in essence mature in this sense i know the bible speaks to us also as those who grow in maturity as christians but here paul's talking about us who we're able to discern and judge things and we are not judged by anyone by no one he says well what does he mean by that we have all the conditions for growth thanks to the spirit 
And the mind of Christ that he speaks of in verse 16 is the Father's profound wisdom regarding salvation through his Son, which was hidden and now revealed by the Spirit. This means you can bring your questions and your challenges to God the Father by the Spirit and discover how the wisdom of Christ's cross applies to your situation. This means that you'll never be judged by the Father because you have a question, you have a challenge. Why? Christ finished the work. And the one who is judged now, the Lord Jesus, is your advocate and your high priest. And he's interceding for you. And he's the one giving you wisdom, giving you this righteousness and sanctification and redemption that are found in him. We have the mind of Christ, Paul says. We have his mind because the Spirit's indwelling us. We're united to him. What does this mean? Christ and his cross changes everything. Think about this. Sinful fear that we once had, that was sinful because we never trusted the Lord, it's changed into a reverent fear. We still can have fears, but it's a reverent fear knowing that God's in control. I bet our brothers and sisters in Houston have been terribly fearful this week. But by the grace of God, it's not a sinful fear that causes them to despair, but rather a trusting fear in the hands of an almighty God who will care for them. Idolatry is replaced with genuine worship of God in spirit and in truth, as Jesus said in John 4. Instead of forgetting the Lord, we have the spirit of adoption who stirs up family affection so that we remember the Lord. And we call him Father. The laws that were written on stone in the Old Covenant are replaced with God's law written on our heart in the New Covenant. Circumcision of the flesh is replaced with circumcision of the heart. Covering of sins for a year by an animal's blood is replaced with complete forgiveness forever. Seeing and savoring ourselves as king is replaced with seeing and savoring Christ the king in our lives. And so Christ and his cross changes everything. And we can trust his word because in his word we find Christ. In his word we find true wisdom. And so my challenge, my encouragement to you this morning is to be in your word. The reason we want to be in the word and be in prayer is not just so we can check a box. It's not just so we can do our, quote, duty and God will be happy with us. It's because when we're in the Word, we see our Savior. We see true wisdom. We see the power of God and the wisdom of God in Christ. And the Spirit, by the power of God, applies the Word of God to our lives and actually makes us like Jesus. So we can be changed. And we don't have to live in that sin anymore. We don't have to live in that fear anymore. We don't have to live in that ignorance anymore. And that's my desire for you. That's my prayer for you. Is that Christ would be formed in you. And that we would see it as a church. And we would see your fruitfulness and your effectiveness in our community. And we would all praise God together. Father, thank you for this word and this time together. What a simple thought that we can trust your word. It's not complicated, but yet it is so hard to do. Because we're so tempted to run to the wisdom of this world, to the rulers of this age who come with lofty speech and eloquence. And they convince us by various means, their fancy marketing schemes, and we buy into it thinking it's going to make our life better. 
And all it does is make it worse. Forgive us, Father. Forgive us. We come to you. We come to Christ and we cling to him this morning. We're going to celebrate this table this morning. This reminder to remember the finished work of our Savior. Remember who he is. He is your son, the Lord of glory. Remember what he did. He went to the cross, paid the penalty for our sin, was buried in a grave, was raised from the dead on the third day, and he's now seated at your right hand. And every time we take it together, we proclaim his death and his burial and his resurrection until he comes again, and he is coming again to make all things right. We long for that day. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.